The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. I expect more from our team than I do um, from others. And right, wrong, or indifferent, I think that's been an element of why I've been successful in why our engineering organization is viewed as a significant strength within our company as a whole. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today, we're speaking with Brian Brooks, who holds a bachelor's and master's degree in biomedical engineering, as well as an MBA. Brian has worked for Terumo Cardiovascular Systems since graduating in 2005 and has held positions from engineer to engineering manager to his current role as director of engineering. Brian, welcome to the show. Aaron, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So how did you decide to become an engineer? <laughs> um, yeah, so for me, it was something, um, you know, growing up, I come from a blue-collar family. Um, my dad was very hands-on. Most of the work that was done at our house, um, he had done. So every weekend, there was some sort of house project that he was doing, um, utilizing his hands, construction, you know, basic math functions, things of that nature, figuring out cuts and putting pieces together. Um, so it just sparked an interest in, you know, how do you make things? Uh, how do you make improvements, um, you know, to physical structures per se? And for me, that just sparked the interest. I was always his shadow and I wanted to be involved and you know, be his little handyman. Um, so coming from a blue collar family, I was someone who um, I fared well academically, had a, a talent in the science and math arenas. And, you know, as time came to think about what is it that I want to do when I grow up? You know, my parents pointed towards engineering. Um, neither of those uh, of my folks had had gone to college, and for them, engineering, you know, it's a it's a reputable, it's a safe and stable industry. Uh, it gives you the ability to to earn a decent salary and provide for your family. You know, unless you invent something, I don't think you're going to strike it rich and become a billionaire. But it's something that it certainly gives some stability. Um, so I had fused my passion for you know continuously improving, understanding how things work, how things go together with my junior year in high school. I want to say I was taking an AP bio class and um, that was around the time that uh, Dolly the sheep was cloned. And I, that just fascinated me. So I took a, a significant interest in um, genetics and genomics. Um, and my AP bio teacher was um, Dr. Stevens. He was a guy, he was, he was pretty engaging and had a passion for it. And that for me, was like, all right, I, I want to pursue this. So I started looking and at that point, like biomedical engineering was, it was growing, um, but the field of genetic engineering was, I don't want to say in its infancy, but it was still in the uh, early adopter phase per se. So I looked around programs that had the ability to, to branch out and get into that. And um, obviously from where I'm at now in med devices and where I started is, is a bit of a shift. And how I, I navigated that pathway is I went into to Drexel University and I enrolled in biomed engineering. As you said, I enrolled in their BSMS program. And I started taking classes towards the genetic engineering track. And um, one summer, I had taken a program through um, University of Penn and Drexel, our, our neighbors. They're literally divided by a street in Philadelphia. And I had taken a class um, through University of Penn on genomics. 
And it was interesting, but what I had found during that is it wasn't tangible enough for me. You know, everything was on the molecular level and I couldn't touch it. I couldn't feel it. And it didn't, it didn't ignite the passion that I had thought that it would. Um, so I had honestly really just given some consideration to, is this really what I want to pursue? And uh, the beauty of Drexel is that they do a, an internship program. So it's a five-year program for your, your bachelor's. And um, for three years of that, you go to school for six months, and then you have the ability to work in industry for six months. Um, so I had utilized each of those uh, six-month stints to trial a different field in a different company. And one of the um, trials that sparked a passion for me, I, I worked for a consulting firm that specialized in um, orthopedic med devices. And that just initiated a, a love. It combined my interest in engineering and, and how things are, are made. Uh, how do you design things? How do you test things? How do you ensure they're safe for human use? With I could actually see it and touch it. And that to me was really important. And then you couple that with just the, the impact that med devices have on someone's life in a positive way. And it, it checked all of the boxes as far as what I was looking for. Um, and then from a practical sense of the matter, you know, as I mentioned, my parents had pushed me towards engineering. It's safe and stable. When you get into engineering in um, you know, medical device world, that's one of the more stable industries, I would say, just given that, especially in the cardiovascular space that I've operated, it's, you know, it's twice tested through my career and it's fairly recession proof. So it's been uh, a good, a good landing spot for me throughout my career. Yeah. People are always going to get sick, right? Unfortunately, that's the case, but yeah, provides job security in a lot of respects. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I love that you talked about at Drexel uh, how they have this curriculum or this approach to education where you're doing a six month internship uh, as opposed to just you know the the standard academic curriculum that that uh, typical universities put the students through. Um, I think that's such a great approach to engineering education or really any education. Um, I, I have this philosophy that doing is better than learning about doing. And it, it sounds like you had ample opportunity for, for doing through your university experience. Absolutely. Uh, it's something for me, you know, it really had shifted where I ended up from a career perspective that if I didn't have those opportunities, I would have graduated and, and stayed on that genetic engineering path because I wouldn't have really understood what else, you know, what other opportunities were available and how do I apply what I'm learning in a classroom into the real world. Um, so my first internship, honestly, I worked for um, a large pharmaceutical company and I worked in pharmacokinetics and understanding how drug compounds work and how do you test things. And it was interesting to me. Um, but like I said, it was when I did that, that summer stint um, working in a genomics lab that I was like, this, it's not for me. And I don't think that there's enough um, focus on that as you know, you're 18 years old, you go away to school and you declare a major, um, especially for those people who come from families who you know, don't have college educations guidance programs in high schools, um, you know, they vary as far as the quality of the guidance that's provided to students and even just knowing what's out there from a, a career perspective. Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly with the getting out there and doing is so much more important than just sitting in a classroom and learning that. And it, um, it truly did give me the opportunity to understand what do I like and what do I not like? And it rather than go into my career and get a couple of years in and realize I don't really like this, Maybe I need to go back to school to learn a whole different field. It, you know, it accelerated my career growth by by virtue of knowing I was in the right spot from day one. 
So you are currently the director of engineering at a large medical device company, which, I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool business card to have. What, uh, what's the best part of your job? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for me, it's, it's honestly the, the people aspect of the job. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm not the best engineer in the world, right? I can hold my own. I've proven my success and my ability to be a successful engineer early in my career. Um, but I'm not the most technically sound, mechanically apt engineer out there. Um, I think what separated me from some of my peers enabled me to accelerate my growth is my leadership capabilities. And very early on in, in my career, just you know, life in general, I had identified that as a passion for me. So the best part of my job is the ability to um, to form those human connections, to hire people, to watch their growth and to help facilitate their growth through the organization. Um, you know, I'm fortunate. I know it's not necessarily the norm in this day and age to stay with an organization for 16 years. Um, you know, Turmo has made it appealing for me. I've been successful and demonstrated my worth to them. And I think they've uh, moved me pretty aggressively through the ranks. Um, and the beauty of that is I've had the ability to hire 85% of the team that I have at this point in time. And, you know, my first leadership position, I had three engineers reporting into me and I hired all of them. And that was as a supervisor level. And now as director of engineering and just over the past two years, I've added operational excellence under my umbrella. Um, it's something I have 46 people on staff. And like I said, about over 80% of those I've hired in the 16 years I've been there. Um, wow, so just so the, you've like hired your entire group almost, right? Yeah. I mean, basically. Can, can you talk a little bit about how do you know if, uh, how do you know that, that a candidate is the right person for the job? What are some of the, the tools you use to, to get a sense for the, the fit? Yeah. So the, honestly, um, especially at this point in my career, our, our interview process is pretty robust so that um, I'm typically the last person that talks to our, you know, more junior engineers, engineer ones, engineer twos, senior level engineers, things of that nature that come into the organization. And through my management team and my peer team, we've created a, a 360 degree interview process in that a candidate coming to interview for a member of my staff will meet um, certainly with a hiring manager. Um, they'll meet with their peers, people they'd be working with on a daily basis. Um, you know, as they progress through that ranks, they'll, they'll meet with me. And the way we've structured it is that we have at least two of our leadership staff talk with them. Um, one of them is probing for that fit, competency, just general, you know, will they mesh into this organization? Um, and then one of them focuses on the technical aspects. And we have designed questions that we use as stock interview questions. And they're rooted in actual problems that we've experienced within Turumo. And nice. say, here's the situation. How would you solve this problem? And there's no right answer. Just because the solution that we may have implemented you know, made it to our production floor doesn't sure. mean that there's not a better way to do it. So it's really just probing what's that thought process look like? How do you go about solving a problem? So to me, that's really important. Um, and then we've empowered every member of my organization. I expect full transparency when they're meeting candidates and tell them about what's good and what you love about the job. Tell them about what's bad. Like every day is not sunshine and rainbows. And I want people to walk in the organization understanding that, you know, what is your leader good at? What are they not so good at? What are the, the pros and cons of this place? Because interviewing and making a decision to join an organization, it's got to be a fit both ways. And um, that's something that for me, the last step in the interview process at the point in time when I'm speaking to those more junior levels is just that ISS fit. How are they going to fit into our culture? What are they going to bring? Are they going to add something to our culture? 
Um, are they going to maybe shift it in a positive way? Could they have potential to shift it in a negative way? Uh, I think my job as a leader at this point in time is really uh, have a vision, set the expectations, hire talented people, and then get out of their way. Let them do their <laughs> job. Um, and they've got to be empowered and then, of course, held accountable on the back end. So it's really my interview style, <laughs> I've been told, is uh, it's a bit unique in the types of questions that I ask. And for me, it's really more important of who are you as a person? And I let, uh, liken it back. I think it was Warren Buffett said, and I, I love it. The quote is, you know, we look for three things when we hire people. We look for intelligence, we look for initiative, and we look for integrity. And without integrity, the intelligence and initiative will kill you. So if you're going to hire someone without <laughs> intelligence, you want them lazy and dumb. Well said. (laughs) I read that and it it stuck in my mind. And I was like, yes, Uh, I mean, that integrity piece holds it all together. So especially working in med device and knowing that decisions engineers make and things that they do, like those products are going to be used as someone's having, you know, potentially open heart surgery. Right. You can't sacrifice integrity in anywhere along that pipeline and have, you know, we operate with the my family mentality that any device that we design and manufacture Assume that's going to be used on your mother, on your father, on your sister, Ooh, that's your a brother, good one. whatever that may be. Um, and that's really what we we look for and expect of our folks. So it's that integrity piece is huge. Can you talk a little bit more about the accountability? That was actually something I wanted to ask you about, and, and you mentioned it. So how, how do you keep people accountable? How do you set the right expectations? Yeah. So honestly, I think that's one of the most difficult aspects of the job because accountability means something different. To different people. And even within an organization, it can mean something different to different leaders. And those expectations are, are different. Um, you know, I would say one of the knocks that I get on me is that I have a very high bar and I expect more from our team than I do um, from others. And right, wrong or indifferent, I think that's been um, an element of why I've been successful in why our engineering organization is viewed as a significant strength within our company as a whole. Um, it's those expectations. My job, I always want to be a, an exporter of talent. So I don't want to hire the smartest people and hoard them on my team. I want them to branch out and move into other organizations and you know, within Tarumo, hopefully, but to bring the skill set that we, we have in, and that culture and spread it throughout our organization as a whole. So the accountability is um, it's, from a leader, you've got to set, here is what I expect of you. And there's course adjustment that's required. Sometimes there's clarification. It depends on what the task is. But at the end of the day, I expect ownership from our folks. And with that, my family mentality, I want you to own every aspect of this. And when I first started at the facility I'm at in Taruma, there was maybe 85 people on staff and it operated very much like a, a small company. Um, and it's grown now. We have 330 people in the facility. So, you know, it's tripled in the time that I've been there, if not more. And um, that growth has been important for us, but it's that mentality of we've got to own things from T to green, right? If we're designing a new product, working with our product development group, we're responsible for that all the way until the time it gets to the patient. And that's that ownership that I want our, our organization to feel. And then just, I've never been one to settle for the status quo. So everyone on my team knows that like, I want you to be disruptive in a positive way, challenge the system, push us. You know, we've got to empower our people to continue to drive change in our organization. Um, so quite honestly, like putting metrics on engineers is really hard to do. There's very specific. <laughs> I'm glad project. I'm not the only one who feels that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's very specific project based metrics you can put in place, you know, earn value analysis. Are you on schedule? You're on budget. Are you hitting your deliverables? Things of that nature. 
but other things that I look for. And we've tried to actually create, um, you know, being engineers, we want everything to have, um, you know, numbers associated with it on a ranking system. Measurable. So yeah. We, yeah. We've put means in place to how do you measure quality? Like as you're writing technical reports and validations, how many times does it get kicked back through a review process within our quality system? Um, how many NCRs does your work generate when you launch something onto the production floor? Are there issues in that launch? Is it usable from a production perspective? That all goes into how we assess quality within the performance of our engineers. And then there's something that, you know, engineers were supposed to be innovative. So for us, um, one of the things that we've evaluated and, and looked at on a monthly basis is just that innovation. How many new ideas are you suggesting? Hmm. And it's one, just the volume of what you're suggesting. But then one of the things that engineers aren't always great at is being salesmen or saleswomen. So it's great. You suggested your idea, but have you sold me on it? Have you sold our organization on why we should a- apply resources to implement that change? Um, so they get, you know, on a say a five point scale, you may get one point for just simply suggesting an idea. But if it gets adopted by our leadership team and moved towards an implementation, depending upon the scale of complexity, you'll get more points for that. So we try so to, to you literally in, have a point system then um, we we have. Honestly, I'll say we've drifted away from that in the recent years. And there's a okay. lot of reasons as getting to that. But we would every single month we would. Um, I don't want to say force rank, but we would go and evaluate our engineer's performance. And I would, I'm a transparent guy. I remember very distinctly having this discussion and on a quarterly basis, I pull my whole team together and we do like a, you know, where have we been? Where are we going? What's good in, in our world? And when I came up with this idea and working with our leadership team and some of the input from individual contributors, I'm like, we need a better means of evaluating our engineering team as a whole. So you can see what, how your performance, you know, how does that compare to your peers in some way, shape or form? Yeah. yeah. And I was like fully transparent. I said, I want, and I want to publicize on a monthly basis. Here's the top ranked engineer on organization. And here's number 45. And people <gasps> I'm so freaked. curious to hear. Yeah. How did that pa- yeah, play out? It was a, it was a divide, but it was probably the split. And most people are like, I don't want to do that. Um, so for <laughs> me, like I'm super competitive. I wanted every time I had a performance evaluation, I know where do I fall in the grand scheme of things. And then the yeah. Um, but I get not everyone's wired that way. So I'm, I try to be flexible. It was a, a I don't want to say heated, but it was a passionate discussion and I'm a stubborn guy. So it took a while to talk <laughs> me off that ledge. But I'm like, I don't want this to me isn't worth losing my team over. I don't want yeah, them to yeah. lose trust in me as a leader. Um, so what we had shifted is, okay, if you're not comfortable with that, what we will do is we'll publicize the top five engineers on a monthly basis. So hmm. you can see like, Hey, I know that, Courtney was our top rated engineer last month and I saw what she was doing. She was killing it. So if I want to be the top rated engineer, I need to emulate her behaviors. Um, So things of that nature. And on the flip side, I had the expectation that each of our engineering managers and supervisors would share their ranking in a one-on-one meeting with each of their team members. So I didn't want people to blindly say like, I didn't know that I was the number 44 performing engineer on the team. You know, whether that's, Public knowledge is a different beast, but that person needs to know where they rank. And that was every member of an organization found out where they ranked. And then that there was um, discussions with the bottom five each each month, I would say, of like, hey, just want to let you know, you know, you're in the bottom five from a performance perspective. And it should never come as a surprise. That to me as a leader, you're failing if either positive or negative feedback comes as a surprise to you. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I felt pretty strongly in and – um, I think there's a lot of work to be done to strengthen and improve how engineering performance can be measured. 
because there's no standard way to do it. It varies from organization to organization. It varies from one leader to the next, but it's something um, I think it's important to do. So uh, I agree. That's a really interesting point that you bring up. I've struggled with the same thing. Like how do we evaluate how well engineers are doing? I mean, at, at one point, uh, we track our hours because that's part of our business model. But we, we track all of our hours. And when we assign a task or when we create a task together with an engineer for a project, uh, we there's, there's a conversation. You know, it's, it's uh, the project manager and the engineer talking about how long should it take to do this task. And the engineer will say, well, I think it's going to take 15 hours. And project manager says, yeah, that sounds about right. So we'll put 15 hours for this task. Then you go do it. And there was a time when we ran reports um, each each quarter or each month to see, like, okay, how close did you get to executing that task based on the number of hours that that you know you yourself thought it was going to take? And and what we found was it, it was kind of all over the place. And when I would talk with the engineers about this, they'd be like, well, yeah, I thought it was going to take 15 hours, but then this thing came up and, and no one could have seen that coming. And and I had to admit, well, you're right. Yeah, no one could see that coming. So uh, I think the 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 nature of new product development is such that, you know, inherently there are there are unknowns around every corner and you just can't plan for all of them. So we we abandoned that system because it just didn't seem fair or or useful really, and uh, I, I still yeah to this day struggle with like how do we evaluate uh, productivity for for the engineers? It, it's a challenging problem. Someone out there needs to go solve that. Yeah, I mean honestly for for me, uh, we've launched our PMO maybe three or four years ago, and have uh, improved on that maturity model. And one of the things that was hugely beneficial in that respect is just the implementation of earned value analysis. So. You're looking at what's your schedule completion index and what's your cost performance index, right? At the end of the day, that's what matters to the company on a yeah. cold, hard facts. And um, what we've, we're building is a database. So if you went in and say, it should take me six days to do this testing and then one day to do this statistical analysis and report writing, and it actually took you nine days, okay, well, why? And we'll add that to our raid log. And within that raid log, you know, we then, at the end of projects, the intent is let's do a post-mortem on this project. And how, what was our baseline? And what was the deviation from that baseline? And then the intent is to create a database. So as you're doing similar work in the future, you can go in and look at this repository of data and say, well, last time Brian did testing that was really similar to that, it took him nine days. So we're trying to generate a means of saying, here's the average duration that a task of this nature takes. So as you're creating your schedule, plug in that average and scale it based upon the complexity of how it differs from what historically has been done and what you're trying to do. But, you know, engineers are very data driven. So having that, and it's not nearly as mature as I'd like it to be, but having at least the ability to go back and say, here's how long it took Brian to do it last time. You know, and maybe Aaron, you're more efficient than I am. And I think I can, you know, Brian was that number 44 engineer and I'm engineer number one. I can do it in four days and I'm going to build that into my schedule. Okay. So I, be I love that. That data driven approach. That ma- makes me feel so comfortable, you know, like a, right? like a <laughs> cozy corner by the fireplace or something Absolutely. <laughs> for engineers. Um, well, you talked about this a little bit uh, in terms of cultural change, but I guess you were at the heart of, of, as you describe it, driving cultural change within the engineering organization. Um, can can you share? Are there other like really tactical things that you did to to help drive that cultural change? Yeah, um, cultural change is something that 
it's really difficult and it requires an investment in. It's not something that happens overnight and it's not something that happens by virtue of one person. Um, so I don't think that our culture as an organization is what it is because of me. You know, I have a ripple effect, but it needs, you need people to buy into your vision and then to be advocates of that and add their own flavor to it. So for me, it's, it's twofold. Um, it comes into, who you hire, that's the single most important decision you make as a leader, making sure that they're going to bring something or shift that culture in a positive light or contribute to it positively. Um, but you have to listen to people to understand what are their pain points? What are the things that they like? What do they dislike? And you've got to be willing to shift your approach, right? The discussion of, I want to publicize number one through 45. And they're saying, whoa, 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 you do this. It's going to have a negative impact on our culture. And I'm like, I respect that. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your judgment. So um, it's one of those things that you've got to have a vision of where do you want to go and you got to be confident in yourself to, to change a decision that you may have made or to shift your approach. Um, you know, for me, it's something that, uh, throughout my career I've learned and we may get into this late in some of your later questions that you, you know, you put some food for thought in, but, um, early in, in my career, I realized that I need to listen better. And it was something that, um, I'm big on 360 evaluations and, as I was doing my MBA, I went in and there was a very formalized process to do a 360 evaluation. And I had done what I termed 360s in the past every year with my team. And I, I know what my supervisor and his supervisor or her supervisor, um, how they evaluated my performance. I asked every member of our organization to evaluate my performance as well. What I was missing was that peer network. So when I got that feedback, it was pretty negative. Because I would have, you know, smartest guy in the room syndrome. I wouldn't value the opinion of other guys. And I'm like, I, here's how I think we should solve this problem. And this is what we're going to do. And success through my career had positioned me in that way. But it was naive of me to not hear what people were saying. So that shifted really considerably my approach to cultural build out. Um, and so my grandmother, someone, she, she moved in with my family when I was two years old. And she was my sounding board. We would, you know, just talk all the time. And one of the things she said to me as I was sharing this feedback, it hit me hard. She's like, you know, Brian, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them in proportion. <laughs> and it's something from that point, it really clicked with me of I need to be a better listener. So listening to my own team, listening to my peers, um, that's really helped me to understand what does our team want from a cultural perspective? What makes their jobs better and easier? So an example of how we've just recently deployed that is, um, you know, typical MBA, you do a SWOT analysis. What's our team? You know, what are our strengths, our weaknesses, what are the opportunities and what are the threats that we have from a team perspective? And we did that. I did that on an individual contributor level. I wanted to hear the raw feedback and I didn't want to be there as it was compiled because if I'm in the room, it may shift what that discussion is. So it comes back. It's all randomized for who says what. And we put it together. And the question is great. Now, what do we do with it? It's like if you're just collecting feedback and not doing anything, um, the result is people are going to stop telling you what they like and what they don't like. So what we've done more recently is I've created a quote unquote SWAT teams who go in and we take that feedback and we, we understand that we can't fix everything at once. It's a continuous improvement cycle. So we picked what we thought were the three most meaningful work streams of pain points for our team. And we put a, a team and it was all volunteer. Listen, if you guys want to be part of improving the culture of our organization, let me know. There's no levels within the SWAT team. Our interns have the same voice as I do in this. 
Um, and it's, we just form those work streams and they get to pick which work stream they want to, to contribute to. And it's, let's try to solve this problem, break into bite-sized pieces. And then how do you communicate that back to the team of, we heard what you're, you've said, and here's what we're doing to actually implement and affect change in that manner. So I think when people understand that you value what they have to say and you take action upon that to help improve their lives, that just positively impacts the culture and builds a followership. That's fantastic. I, I love all of that. And it goes back to what you were saying about accountability, right? Like if it's the team members that are incorporating or driving towards that change, then it, it's not like it's coming from the executive team or something, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the boots on the ground, people who are making that change and, and they have accountability for it and they have, um, uh, ownership. Of it. ownership. There's the word. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's I mean, there's not enough time in the day and I'm not smart enough to fix everything. So it's like, that's why you <laughs> hire people that are smarter than you and, and passionate so that they can help to do those things. And um, just empowering your team, I think is something that isn't done well enough or large enough. Like you've hired these people, empower them, trust the decisions that they're going to make. And obviously you don't want to fail and have a product recall that's going to negatively impact patient safety. So you should have checks and balances in place but it's that whole, you know, fail fast, fail cheap mentality. And we've got to be okay with failure. Like I'm someone with my level of transparency, you know, I want to have the, here's the hall of fame for the great ideas and our engineers of the month. And here's what they've done. I want to have our hall of shame. Here's what we did that panned. It didn't work out. And it's like, let's put that out there. So people aren't afraid to challenge the system and to push and fail, right? That's how we're going to get better. Yeah. yeah, hopefully so, not with people's faces plastered next to the failures. Right? <laughs> exactly. We can this make this was the fail last month. Ed, yeah. Rick, and Jamie, <laughs> fail. Exactly. Uh, um, I want to go back to uh, the, this this uh, epiphany that you had about your own listening skills and, and changing those because that's like a, a deep uh, trait, you know, like a, a personal characteristic of a, almost not, maybe not defining who you are, but it, it's part of who you are. And it can be really challenging to make a change at that like fundamental level. How, how did you go about, first of all, accepting that, yeah, this is true. I do need to listen uh, better. And then like, what were some of the steps that you took internally to, to, to facilitate that change? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it's something with me, as I said, I don't uh, tout myself as the best engineer in the world, but I, I think I've led most of my career with um, a semblance of emotional intelligence and understanding in a relationship, in a conversation, how is someone else feeling and how do I need to adjust course as a result of that? And, you know, early in my career as I was charging the hill and then quickly moving up the ranks and, you know, having titles uh, above those of my peers who had significantly more experience, that in and of itself can be off-putting to people. So I needed to recognize that. Um, so I honestly, like I hearkened back and sharpened some of my skills. So coming out of school, like I said, I was the first one to go through college. Drexel wasn't cheap. I graduated. I had 140 grand in student loan debt. So for the first eight years of my professional career, I waited tables at a steakhouse on top of working. So I, you know, go to work, get in, very early. And then three, three days during the week, I would leave, go right to the restaurant, get there at six, jump in mid shift, close the restaurant. And then Saturday or Friday and Saturday nights, I'd work as well. That to me was an invaluable experience of meeting strangers on a daily basis, the ability to read people, 
You know, you go out to a restaurant, sometimes you're more chatty and you want to engage with your server. Sometimes you just want them to bring your drinks and your food and leave me alone. So that like sharpened my ability to read, I call it, you know, reading a table to read people. Um, and I was coming off of that as I was going through my MBA and getting this feedback. So I just connected those dots of, I need to better read people in the moment and adjust course in the moment. So I got into this habit of reflection. So at the end of my day, I've got an hour commute to and from work. So I try the first half hour of my shift or my drive home. I would think about the day. What went well? What didn't go well? What's one human interaction I had that I thought was a really good interaction? And was there one that maybe didn't go as well as I had planned? And then you just think about that and, well, what could I do differently? And the accountability. So I had to hold myself accountable enough to circle back to that person who maybe that conversation didn't go as planned and I left them with a negative taste in their mouth and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't behave in a manner that was respectful of your opinion or I was maybe um, not listening as well as I could and I want to make sure that I understand what you were trying to say. Um, so you've got to make yourself vulnerable. And for me, what I found throughout my life and my career is that the deepest connections that I formed are in those moments that I've made myself completely vulnerable to someone else. Um, and that took a lot of work internally as someone, you know, I've been very confident throughout my whole life of sometimes you got to be knocked down a notch and, and not let that destroy your confidence in, in who you are. Take that as a data point, adjust your approach, but keep moving forward. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny as I listen to you talk, I hear a lot of the same attributes in you that, that I recognize in myself. Uh, I have never considered myself to be a world-class engineer, you know, maybe number two, number three tops, but no, not even (laughs) close. Um, But I've always felt like I was really good at communicating with people. I know how to read people. Um, uh, And, uh, I, I got into my leadership role through a different route than you got into your role, but I feel very comfortable in this role, and I think it's a good fit for me. And and I think that's probably true of a lot of leaders, that uh, they may or may not be exceptionally gifted in a technical from a technical standpoint, but they probably are exceptionally gifted from a communication, um, uh, an emotional intelligence standpoint. And I've, I've thought about that a little bit and like, how does one go about developing that skill? I think it can be developed part. I think part of it is, is who you are, you know, it's in your genes or however you want to say that, but I think it, it also can be nurtured and developed and fostered. And I really love the example that you gave waiting on tables, working in a restaurant. I mean, that's, that's great experience. And you did it for, was it eight years? Did you say? Yeah. That, uh, I mean, wow, boom, mind blown right there. That uh, I'm not suggesting that every engineer should go out and wait <laughs> tables for eight years, but, but what a fantastic way uh, to get real-world experience interacting with lots of people. I mean, talk about rapid uh, development that right there. I mean, what, what a, that was, that was, that was a, a big point for me. That's something I had never considered before, but really glad that you shared that. Well, I'm going to take just a really short break and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, 
custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Brian Brooks today, Director of Engineering at Terumo Cardiovascular. Um, one, uh, another question I had for you was, when I, when I talk with people on the podcast, one of the questions I often ask is, what are you know, the, the two or three most important skills for engineers to have? And uh, surprisingly, but not surprisingly, one of the most, pr- probably the most common answer is really good communication skills. Um, so it's not necessarily the, the, the technical skills. Of course, you have to have that at, to a certain point, but you also need to be able to really communicate well. Can you think of a time when uh, maybe communication among your team w- was not at its best? And how did your team go about trying to improve communication with, with one another? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. So if you can't think of anything, that that's fine too. No, it, it's a valid question and something, you know, whenever you seek feedback from team, communication often gets cited as a significant, as one of the most significant challenges that, that organizations have. Um, so there's multiple ways that I can answer your question. Um, if you take it from a, a technical standpoint, some of the, the issues are, I don't know what's going on in our group as a whole, right? I've got five different groups under my umbrella from lifecycle management, sustaining engineering to a production development, sort of advanced operations group to our project management office to non-product software and an operational excellence group. There's not all that much crossover other than my staff meeting with each of the managers who lead those functions. So the engineers down the line are like, I don't know what is going on over in Mike's group. I don't see their work on a daily basis. Um, So we did two things with that. One, um, I had gotten into the habit of sending what started as a monthly what's good and what's bad in engineering. And I would just pull all of our team of, you know, what is it that that you think is going well, what hasn't gone well? And I'd summarize that. And (laughs) it would take me probably, honestly, four hours to craft this email and send out to the team. Um, And then I had shifted that back to a quarterly basis. But it's like, here's what's going on and just highlights and try to name names of who done who did what and be specific as possible and try to add some brevity and fun to it as well. Um, and that was one thing that, that helped resonate to bring awareness to what was going on. Um, we've implemented an engineer of the month and an engineer of the quarter program. So we just use a survey monkey and anyone in our whole operation can, it's not just my engineering team. It's all 300 people on our site can go in and say, you know what? I think Aaron did a great job doing X or Y. And it could be something as completion of a significant project or you know what? Um, Kimberly stepped in and helped me complete testing late last night, and it was really beneficial to me, and I appreciate her team spirit. And it just goes out. Every nomination gets included in our survey monkey. People can just go in and vote. And then at the end of each month, we say, here's the engineer of the month. And then at the end of each quarter, we send out those three winners, and you get to vote on engineer of the quarter, and they get some swag. So that was helpful in bringing awareness to some of the good things that were going on. Um Outside of that, what we've done is within our our project management office, we've built uh, dashboards within a software system that we utilize. So you can go in and everyone's got access to it. And you can see, here's what our top priorities are. Here's what the status of the project is from a health perspective, our earned value analysis, what phase of the project is it in. Um, And anyone has access to that. It's not restricted to just engineering. It's something that our VP of ops can go in and know exactly what's going on in any project. If he clicks into the overarching dashboard and narrows down to a project specific dashboard. So that's been really helpful um, in, in shifting the, the communication. And then the last thing on a, a much more personal level is, you know, I've 
always tried to operate with the, certainly an open door policy. And then I want to get to know people. So I would do, um, you know, pre pandemic, um, just breakfast with Brian. And we'd literally just pick six, seven different people on the organization across all levels. And we'd go and sit at a cracker barrel and have breakfast for two hours, and just talk and get to know each other on a human level. And if the conversation veered towards work, it veered towards work. If it veered towards, you know, your personal life, it, it went that way. And there was no rules around it, but it was just forming those connections because for a lot of people, um, you know, I, I'm, I operate differently than a lot of director level positions would. And, you know, I want entry level engineers to be able to walk into my office and have a conversation with me and it not be intimidating. So I've got to create that environment where people feel comfortable and build those relationships. So I invest time in doing that. Um, and then that whole listening. So I'll think of two examples, uh, two of the managers on my team, I, I push people hard. I want them to develop aggressively and quickly. Um, there's this one, um, young lady on my team who she's very similar to me and how she's driven and she's moved aggressively through our organization. She's an engineering manager within our uh, production support organization now. And I push her hard. She was an athlete. I was an athlete. And a lot of that coaching is like not always the rah, rah. Sometimes it's that you need to hear the hard truth and, and deal with it. Um, and one of the things that she shared with me is there's times that she wants me to be more empathetic and to hmm. be with her in the moment. Um, so I I heard that loud and clear and I went and I wrote that on a post-it and it hangs on my monitor on my desk to this day. And it says, be present with me in the moment. And I've, I look at that and I try to, you know, as we're having these conversations and whether we butt heads or challenge each other, it's like, all right, take a deep breath. What is she saying? How do I need to respond? How do I need, it's not the reaction. There were points in my career where I would react and not choose a response. So I've allowed myself to take that breath to understand what she's feeling and then respond, not react. Um, similarly, another uh, gentleman on my team, uh, Scott Keith. I, again, I push people. I have high expectations for our team. So a lot of times just in a passing conversation, I shoot him an email like, Keith, I need you to drive this, drive this change with so-and-so. And my terminology wasn't always indicative of what I was actually asking of him. When I say drive something, oftentimes what I would mean is initiate the conversation. When you talk about responsibility and accountable, you are not the person. We have a racy matrix for here's our issues and here's who should do what in these times. Like, Keith, you are not the responsible or accountable party here. But I've shifted my commentary to him of not, hey, can you drive this? If I want him to drive something, I say, I need you to drive this and own it. But it's now, Keith, can you start a conversation with Stacy about this issue? And I have that post-it. Start a conversation, not drive, literally sitting on, it's stuck on my monitors. Um, so as people give me these feedbacks, and they've been there for probably a year and a year and a half, those sticky notes, um, it's because I want that tangible reminder of listen to people and bring that feedback into your daily actions. I, I want to share something real quickly. I know this is Brian's interview, but I'm going to hijack just for a moment. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> what, what you shared about being present in the moment, it... Uh, triggered this conversation I had with uh, a coach of mine recently, Coach Troy. Shout out to Coach Troy. I shared with him that I've been feeling a lot of stress where our company is, is growing right now, and which is awesome and exciting, but it's also very stressful. And I'd wake up you know, in the middle of the night, 
stressed out over, well, how are we going to, you know, make sure that project is finished and, and who's going to, going to do this and how are we going to make sure our customers are, are happy with everything that, that gets delivered and we're um, maintaining quality and, and, all, and all that stuff. And so I said, Troy, how do I, how do I de-stress? You know, like, how do I deal with these emotions? And, and he said something I thought was really insightful. He said, stress is a, um, uh, stress is what is a reaction to placing your focus on an uncertain future. And if, if you can take your mind out of that uncertain future and just concentrate on right now, be in the moment right now, that, that can help a lot. And I, I didn't really understand it at first. I mean, I said, Troy, that sounds kind of woo-woo, you know, like be, be in the moment. So what does that mean? And, and he says, well, uh, right now, right now, this very second, is, is anyone holding a gun to your head? No, no one's holding a gun to my head. Do you have enough food to eat? Yeah, I have enough food to eat. Do you have shelter? Well, yeah, I have shelter. Uh, are, are you in any mortal danger or, or are you deathly ill? No, I'm not in any danger. I'm not deathly ill. He says, well, in this moment right now, what do you have to be stressed out about? And I said, I guess, I guess nothing like right in this moment. And he says, okay, so that's, that's the start. You know, next time you get into that um, placing your focus on an uncertain future, just come back to the moment. Think about right now, this very second. And is that going to solve all your problems? No, of course not. But it was really helpful for me to just to find a way to ground myself in the moment and, and you know, take a few deep breaths and then come out of that and say, okay, well, maybe this uncertain future is not so bad after all. I can probably figure out a solution to that. But anyway, you, when you were talking about being present in the moment with people, it, it triggered that. And I thought oh, that might be something useful. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something, um, you know, if I can build upon that and share another experience I've had similarly. Um, it's something when you talk, you know, one of the questions you would ask for some preparation and thought it, it harkens back to that of um, habits. And one of the habits that I've implemented into my daily practice over the past two years is understanding which, uh, you know, quote unquote energy zone I'm in. And mm-hmm. I learned this um, through my MBA. There's an annual, um, alumni weekend and I would go down there and there's seminars and different speakers coming and talk to you. And it was at a point in my um, career where I was, I was exhausted. I was burnt out. And the seminar was called how to avoid burnout. And I was like, Oh, I need <laughs> this. Yeah. So, so I attended it and it was a really engaging speaker. And um, the, the premise is that there's four energy zones that you can operate within. Uh, you can be in a, a performance zone. You can be in a survival zone. You can be in a burnout zone or in a recovery zone. And if you put those on a quadrant, you can only move from one zone to the next. You can't Mm. skip one. So I literally, on the whiteboard in my office, my top right corner is reserved, and I have this quadrant there. And every day when I come in, I move a magnet for what quadrant am I in? What am I feeling in that moment? Because for me, I needed to understand when I shifted from that high-performance zone into a survival zone. And at that point in time, when you're in that survival zone, the only options are to go into a burnout zone or to go back into that performance zone. And once you get into burnout, you've got to go through the recovery before you get back to high performance. So for me, it was understanding where am I and then what are the behaviors and actions that I need to take for that recovery. And for me, the two things are human connection and physical exercise. Hmm. So if I'm at a point where I'm, I'm feeling that, hey, you know what? I'm in survival mode right now. I need to either call up one of my mentors or a friend or, you know, 
schedule a team happy hour and go out and let's blow off some steam and have some fun and form, you know, build upon those human connections. Or I need to, to cut out of here and respect my lunch hour and go to the gym and, and go for a run or, or burn that energy off. Um, so it's really, you know, to your point of woo-woo, it's understanding where are you emotionally on that spectrum and just adapting your behaviors as a result of it. But for me, that was really transformative because there would be too many days that I would come in and be in that survival mode and not recognizing that I was dangerously close to burnout or in that burnout phase. Can you say once more, what were the, the, the four stages? Yeah. Um, it, performance, survival, burnout, recovery. Great. That's awesome. Well, Brian, this has been awesome. I, I feel like this has been a masterclass in uh, dealing with people and uh, communication and emotional intelligence. You've shared so many just really profoundly useful insights and, and um, actionable tips. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, be, before I let you go, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your time. I've enjoyed our, our conversation. Um, the easiest way, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, it's something, you know, I have a pretty generic name, but uh, my LinkedIn, you know, search Brian Brooks, Terumo, um, you'll find me. My picture's there. Um, that's probably the easiest means of getting a hold of me. And then, you know, based upon what the conversation is, I'm pretty open and I'll share my cell phone, personal email address, whatever, to continue that conversation. Um, you know, for me, mentorship has been huge throughout my career, and I've had really strong mentors, and I've tried to give back in that respect. So, you know, within my organization, there's uh, probably eight or 10 people that I mentor across not just engineering, across our organization as a whole. Um, and I, you know, I'm open and eager to meet people outside of my network to, to continue that one for me to find more mentors and, and to help pass along, you know, some of my knowledge and experience to others who may be interested. So don't be hesitant to reach out to me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for spending some time. Uh, you've been super uh, generous with, with all of us today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. You take care. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.